Well, lovely to see you. Uh, let's, let's pray together that God would speak to us tonight and help me as I speak. Father God, thank you that we can be together this evening and we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd give us your vision for St. Michael's and we'd share it together. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd make us alive and sensitive to your presence tonight. We, we tell you, Lord Jesus, we are your children and we belong to you. And we, we wish to serve you, Lord. We want to see your kingdom come and your will being done here at St. Michael's as it is in heaven. Thank you, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm going to resist the temptation of repeating all of last week's talk for those um, dozen or so who are here for the first time. But I will just say a couple of things so that you join the party um, knowing where we're going. You see the Olympic rings there as a kind of logo, um, simply to illustrate that the five values that I'm lifting up over these two evenings are all interlinked. None of them are independent. They, they all rely on each other to some extent, and they're all very important. I'm not putting them in an order. I don't think they are in an order of, of importance. They're all important, but they are linked. And uh, it's worth me saying, just right from the word go, to remind us that <clears throat> Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus says that. He's intent upon building his church. He's very emphatic about that. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when you and I decide to harness our strength and our energy behind and alongside God's determination to build his church, you know that you are backing a winner. You, you know that if you invest your life strength in that direction, you won't one day stand in front of God and God says, oh, sorry, you had completely the wrong idea. Because he has said, he has said that he will build his church. And in fact, that is the history of the church. God has been building his church generation after generation. G.K. Chesterton apparently once said, on five occasions in history, the church has gone to the dogs. But on each occasion, it was the dogs that died. I quite like that. But you wouldn't always get that impression that we have confidence in the fact that God is going to build his church. When you walk around and you see churches in various states of decay, and when you listen to people, quite honestly, I can remember now many, many years ago um, attending what was then known as a um, selection conference for ordination. And you were on trial basically for 48 hours. You went away to some place in the countryside for a retreat and it was quite grueling because you knew that you were being watched the whole time. And I went sent from this church and I went bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and full of faith in the Holy Spirit, believing a great future for God's church. And the very first evening, the 14 or so candidates went to this cold, drafty chapel, and we were given an address by a man called Canon Coffin. 
Well, none of us is responsible for our names, so we can't blame him for that. I don't blame him for that, but I do blame him for choosing his title of his talk, which was why the Church of England will continue to decline. And you know, as a kind of wannabe aspirant for leadership within the Church of England, I sat there wanting to shout out, no, because I simply don't believe that. You know, Jesus didn't say, come and join my church, we're destined for extinction. He said, I will build my church. So if I was to set before you a vision which didn't include a future and a hope, I think you should tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Rupert, have you read the good book anytime recently? You know, you, if you're planning for decline, you, you need to read the maker's instructions. All over the world, said Paul to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And that is the case. So last week, we looked at this passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And we picked out, I picked out three ingredients. And to tell you what they were, they were let the word of God grow, let the love of God show, let the worship of God flow. I'm going to read the passage again, and then I'll introduce us to the last two ingredients. So this is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs by the apostles, performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, to pick up the cliffhanger, here is number four of the values. Let the spirit glow. Let the spirit glow. In my early days of talking and preaching, <clears throat> it soon became clear that it would be necessary to have an arsenal of anecdotes or stories or jokes. <clears throat> the trouble was that for quite a long time, I ran off only two jokes. And after a relatively short time, one of my friends came up and took me aside and said, Rupert, you know that you tell two jokes the whole time. Well, one of them is unsuitable. So now you're down to one joke. And eventually that became so predictable that once I went to the pulpit to preach and some wag shouted out from the back, come on, Rupert, tell us a joke about the cow, <clears throat> in brackets again. Well, I haven't yet told you the joke about the cow, but now is my opportunity. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it was said that in a local newspaper in the countryside appeared an advert like this wanted farmhand, no experience required. And there was a townie who lived in the centre of a town, it might have been London, who had actually never, ever been in the countryside himself, not for years and years, he knew nothing about the countryside. But he was proving to himself it was very difficult to get a job in the city, so he went for this interview. 
and he caught the train and he found his way to the farm. The a farmer opened the front door and there was this man dressed in a three-piece suit. He thought, well, this doesn't look very likely, but he remembered that the advert said, no experience required. So he walked the man from the front door into a field and he gave him a bucket and he gave him a stool and he said, you see that cow over there pointing in the distance, milk it. And he said, uh, I'll come back later and see how you get on. Well, the day went on, the farmer got busy and he forgot completely about the applicant. And when he got home for lunchtime, his, his wife said, how did that man get on? He said, oh, I completely forgot. So he walked out into the field and <clears throat> when he was quite a long way away from man, he saw this extraordinary thing. He, he saw the man <clears throat> put the stool down in the right place, sit down, tweak the cow in the right place, and the cow moved forward four paces. And then he saw the man stand up, pick up the stool, walk forward, put the stool down in the right place, sit down, tweak the cow in the right place, and the cow walked forward four paces. And the farmer was scratching his head over this, <clears throat> and he walked closer and closer and closer to the man until in the end he, he was within shouting distance. And he shouted out, hello there, what are you doing? And the man looked up and he said, oh, I think about four miles per gallon. Yeah, and my jokes haven't improved, actually, over all the years. Oh, that's a very kind guy. Thank you. The thing is, though, you know, lots of people look at the Church of England and look at not just the Church of England, but church in general, and they can't make head or tail of what we're doing. And, and they, we look just as ridiculous to them, they think. And we seem to be working that hard and making very little headway but that's not how it's meant to be. And possibly one of the reasons that we look like that, just one, is that the air has come out of our tires. You know that in scripture, the same word is used for wind, breath, spirit. It's, if I want to um, baffle you with Greek, now's my moment, it's the word pneuma. And we could say that we as God's children need to brush up on our pneumatic drill, making space for the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to us as his empowering agent. He makes no secret of this. He just says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and throughout the world. Let me read you a couple of uh, illustrations from quotations, really, from church leaders of different times. I think I referenced before um, the great Spurgeon Baptist preacher. In one of his sermons, preached actually on the 12th of June, 1864, called The Superlative Excellence of the Holy Spirit. You can't say it was a mystery what he was going to be talking about. He said this, if there was only one prayer that I might pray before I die, it would be this. Lord, send your church people filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he says, give to any denomination such people and its progress will be mighty. 
Send eight college gentlemen of great refinement, but of little fire and grace, and straight away that denomination will decline. The preacher might be rustic, simple, and unmannered, but if the Holy Spirit is upon him, none of his adversaries will stand against him. His word shall be with power to the shaking of the gates of hell. Did I not say that the Spirit of God is of superlative importance to the church, and that the day of Pentecost seems to tell us this? And I can remember listening to a radio interview in April 1983, when a church leader of that time, David Watson, was known to be dying of cancer. And this interview going out on the BBC radio was um, quite tense, because we all knew he was dying of cancer. And the chap doing the interviewing, a man called Nick Page, dealt with David very kindly and very sensitively, and it was all pretty gentle, until he bowled him what I thought was rather a googly Without changing the, the pace of the interview, it just kind of came out as one question after another. What, what do you think the greatest need in the church is at the moment, David? And without batting an eyelid, without pausing for breath, with, with no hesitation whatever, I took down the words exactly what he said. David Watson said this, I'm convinced that the greatest need in the church at the moment is for spiritual renewal. Until the Holy Spirit brings back into our midst the reality of worship, the reality of love for one another, the reality of God's presence, until people can say, surely God's in that place, I don't think the church will make any impact at all. And I'm really, really happy to stand before you tonight and say one of the great, great changes for good in the life of the church right up and down this land, and not just this land, is the space now given to the Holy Spirit. He, he's increasingly welcomed and seen as part of everyday normal life of a Christian and God's church. As in the passage we had read, or I read, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And when you read the book of Acts, Signs and wonders permeate the book, don't they? People are healed, people have dreams, people prophesy, people speak in tongues, people are freed with, from demonic powers. It's just part of a normal everyday life. One quite recently retired church leader of a London church commented like this, the early church expected to experience and to see people healed and changed. They expected to see lives turned upside down they expected to experience spiritual gifts and ministries. They expected to see the work of God's Spirit reaching into everyday life. It's not a modern phenomenon which needs careful controlling. It's an essential ingredient of a New Testament church which needs developing. Now, as your newly arrived vicar putting together a vision talk, I thought that most probably at this point, some people would be saying to themselves, bring it on. And others will be saying, oh no, tread carefully, danger ahead. So I thought I'd give you a little a bit of perspective on what my views are on this and tell you a little bit of my story, because I think the truth is that all of us, all of us, bring our own baggage with us when it comes to this area. 
we bring our own experience. And if you've been mightily blessed by the Holy Spirit, say if you've experienced healing or speaking in tongues or God has connected with you through a prophetic word, then you might well be saying to yourself, well, at last, I do hope we can have more flexibility and openness in this whole area. But if you've been duffed up and the victim of charismatic thuggery, there's good reason to put your head into your shell and curl up in a ball. And so I thought it would just be good to share snippets of my own journey in this whole area. And I think I've experienced both, the odd duffing up and the odd blessing. And I got converted, and that's for another night, the story of how that happened, in December 1980. And it was from a completely non-Christian background. I knew nothing about anything. And uh, all I got to know was through reading John's Gospel, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And then I started to read through the New Testament, and I was reading through Romans. Heaven knows how much of it was going in. I really don't remember. But I did get to a verse that says, the Spirit helps us to pray with sighs too deep for words. And I thought to myself, well, I really need help to know how to pray. Uh, prayer is such a new game for me, I just don't know where to start. So I went to the girl that had led me to Christ. Her name was Sarah, and she was <laughs> the fount of all knowledge, as far as I was concerned. And I, I showed her this verse, and I said something along the lines of, what's this all about? Um, if, if the Holy Spirit can help you to pray, I, I need the Holy Spirit's help. And she ran off to her room, and she came back with a booklet. And I thought, my goodness, this is extraordinary. Last week she had a booklet called How to Give Your Life to Christ, and now she's got another booklet called How to Be Filled with the Spirit. I wonder how many more booklets there are up there. Anyway, she, she was launched into this kind of teaching session with me about um, how to receive a gift of tongues. I, I probably don't remember exactly what she said. I, I do remember her saying things like, the gifts of the Spirit are not a goal, they're a gateway. I remember her saying something like that. I remember her saying, the gifts of the Spirit are not merit badges. You don't get them because you've earned them. They're not a prize, they're a free gift. And actually, she was right about that too. I remember her saying something about the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit, and therefore, um, you have to be willing to let him change your life. No point in asking the Holy Spirit to be more present in your life if you've no intention of being more Christ-like. That's what holiness is. But actually, while she was coming out with all this excellent theology, what I was thinking was quite different. I was just thinking, look, girl, more or less paraphrased some 35 years later, you've been walking with Jesus as your friend for years. I've been knowing Jesus as my friend for days. And as far as I'm concerned, I've got an awful lot of catching up to do, and I want all the help I can get. So if the Holy Spirit can help, bring it on. I don't need a great long debate about it. I need help. And also, there was a part of me, because I don't think I've sort of grown up a lot in some ways since, there was a part of me that thought, from God's point of view, surely the resurrection was like heavy lifting. You know, that sounds like heavy duty, bringing someone back from the dead who's been in the grave for three days and nights. That's hard work. Pouring out a few fun gifts, that must be like party time. You know, I can't see God struggling with that one, 
that must be fun. You know, if we, his children, say to him, Lord, I'm here, I'd like to receive your gifts, I should think he says, good, let's get on with it. And so I did, I prayed, I just prayed, Lord, I want to speak in tongues, because if that's your Holy Spirit helping to pray, so be it. I think the last thing my friend said to me is, like any language, if you want to speak it, you have to open your mouth. And I opened my mouth, and it was a strange thing. Slowly, I began to speak in a language I'd never heard of before, and it was speaking in tongues. Well, I'm obviously not going to tell you my whole spiritual story. You'll be here all night, literally, if I told you every single thing. So I'm paraphrasing looking back, condensing years. And I'm going to be very, very honest and straightforward with you to say, without it meaning for it to happen, without me planning that it should happen, I always believed in the gifts of the Spirit. But somehow I found myself from time to time practicing gifts of the Spirit less and less. That it almost seemed as if the gifts um, went into the back of the cupboard and sometimes sort of they only came out for polishing at times like Pentecost. And there would be periods looking back when I would have been keener on this and other periods where I would have been less keen. Um, and I can see various times when um, I got more blessed than others. I remember an absolutely lovely time when, again, it would have been in my early days, just coming to a service, and they always used to have prayer ministry at the front here or in the side chapel. And I remember asking my friend Teddy, the vicar, um, Teddy, will you pray for me to receive more gifts of the Spirit? And he, he said, of course. And he prayed this incredible prayer. He said, um, Lord, you have to imagine a big, towering physical presence, very warm, friendly man. And he said, Lord, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. And then he said, these are Winston's words, Lord, but we claim them for Rupert. And I've never quite worked out the theology of that, how you claim Winston Churchill's words. But, but it was actually great theology. It was actually great theology. Uh, give us the tools and we'll finish the job. I remember another time when I sort of got bucked up in this whole area was when a man <clears throat> called Bill Burnett, who was the retired bishop from Cape Town, South Africa, came and did a little mission here. And he stood in the front of a church. In those days, there were wooden pews. And he just stood and he spoke from his heart with a Bible open in his hands. And he was remarkably fluent. And he told us his personal story of how he'd been bishop in Cape Town. And one day, he'd gone to a school to conduct a confirmation service. And he said his text for the day was Romans chapter 5, verse 5. God's poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then he described how he went back home to his home and he was sitting down having a gin and tonic. I always like the sort of vivid picture of what he was up to. And he felt that God was calling him, tugging him, prompting him to go into the chapel. Now, as, as it happened, um, years later, I became friends of one of his sons, and he gave me a copy of Bill Burnett's autobiography, so I'm able to read you an account of what Bill says. 
He says he left his gin and tonic behind. <clears throat> he went into the chapel, didn't know what to do. So he said, I, I just said to the Lord, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to give you me, Bill, all over again. And he, he started to think of all of his body from the tips of his toes right away through to the top of his head. And he just said, Lord, you can have that. You can have that. You can have that. You can have my intellect. You can have my mind. And then he says this, at that point, something dramatic happened, which radically altered my lifestyle and ministry. The Holy Spirit came upon me in his power, so much that my knees weakened and I sank down onto the floor in adoration of the Father, the Son, and now the Holy Spirit being poured into my heart and being received with unimaginable joy and wonder. I also found myself praising God in a new language. At once I experienced that the anger I'd harbored against my natural father was healed and I was free to forgive him. And then the bell for Sunday lunch rang and reluctantly I responded, feeling rather strange carving the chicken. I now knew the father's love as I'd never known it before. A month of lectures on the Trinity delivered by an erudite scholar at an English theological college had left me intellectually and spiritually befuddled. But now at last I knew the Holy Spirit. It's he alone who renews a dislocated church and world. And I can remember Bill leading us, and probably the congregation wasn't really much more than we are tonight. And I remember we were very scattered all around the church. And the Holy Spirit coming and blessing us as we just prayed. And I'm not sure we had any worship at all musically, but that didn't stand in the way. And I want to say as we kind of venture forward together, don't let the packaging put you off a product. This so easily can happen. You know, when I go into a supermarket, the color of a packaging definitely influences which of the sausages I decide to buy. But it's actually the sausages that matter, not the color of the packaging. And I think some of the packaging that occasionally comes with some of the charismatic stuff has the potential to put me off. And the truth is, it seems to me, that some of us have high de degree of tolerance for mess in church. Some people seem never happier than when there's what appears to me to be bodies all over the place and noise and disorder, but others of us just don't like that a bit. And personally, I happen to think there's quite a lot of choice in this, and I rather take refuge in Paul's ordered mind and his ordered approach to worship too. But the big message is don't let the packaging put you off a product. Try and see the product. Secondly, I, I say to myself, the answer to misuse is not no use, it's correct use. And I've had to be very disciplined with myself over the, over the years. I'll tell you a little anecdote, just because I, I like telling stories. <laughs> In the very, very first Sunday, when I took charge, notionally, under God's hand, um, of a church down in the southwest of England, and uh, I was about 32 years of age, and my son was about two, and my daughter was about three, and it was my very, very first Sunday. And I walked into this church where they're complete strangers to me. I was complete strangers to them. I just arrived from Oxford. 
And just before the service started, or actually it may have just started, I think we sang a hymn and then I said something like, you know, let's have some quiet, let the Holy Spirit search our hearts and minds. And my two-year-old son, who was in the front row, I could see him, in that silence, he grabbed Lizzie's leg and said in a kind of childish whisper that everyone could hear, Mommy! 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 Let's get out of here! <laughs> and, and I have to say, that was exactly what I was thinking. But, but, but later on in the service, later on in the service, after I'd preached my heart out, best I possibly could, and I was leading some other bit, this complete stranger to me stood up and he said, thus says the Lord, this ship has just been taken over by a new captain. If you've got any sense, jump ship. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not hard when something like that happens to think, oh, to hell with the charismatic lot. Let's just get on with life. And I had a lot of misbehavior like that. And the point I'm making at this point is the answer to misuse is not no use, it's correct use. And I wrote on a postcard in my own handwriting, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, which says, the manifestations of a spirit are given for the common good. And I put that postcard on my desk where only I could see it. And when I saw people, as I did from time to time, who come to see me, who were the kind of charismatic thugs, I, I would say to myself, Rupert, don't chuck the whole lot out. Because if you can discover the genuine, this will be a blessing. Paul says it. He says the real manifestations of the Spirit are for the common good. And if we believe the Bible, and that was point one really last week, let the word grow, if we're taught by the Scriptures, then we have to take it seriously when Paul says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And when he says about spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. I've arrived here after 17 years in a city dominated by bicycles. In Cambridge, everyone rides a bicycle. It's in every national census, Cambridge is always the most highly populated town for the bicycles. More people ride a bicycle per head than anywhere else. And there are more crashes in Cambridge on bicycles than anywhere else. If you're a resident in Cambridge, you're not a genuine resident until you've had at least one crash. And um, the thing is, the thing is, you don't stop riding a bike when you have a crash. You have to get back on and use it again. But if people sat you down and told you all the crash stories that ever happened, you might never ride a bike again. But you don't do that. You look at all the thousands of people who do ride bikes and find that they're very effective in getting you from A to B. And we could polish our charismatic crash stories, but why? Why would you want to? We're not saying crashes never happen, but we're saying when they happen, get back on the bike. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. And I'll tell you free gratis as uh, an extra for nothing. Paul didn't write commands for that no sake at all. 
He didn't write to the Thessalonians, don't walk around Thessalonica with bananas in your ears, because he didn't need to write that. No one was doing that. But he has to write, don't put out the Spirit's fire, because you could, and I could. And he says, but I'm telling you, don't do that. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. And I've come to see this is good. Back in the day when I was at Theological College 30 years ago or so, back then the situation was quite different to today. Back then there was quite a division between those who were for this kind of thing and those who were not. It was quite a lively debate. <clears throat> but I discovered something quite interesting. Going forward from that time, about 15 years, and by now we've all been vicars and curates or whatever for a, quite a few years. And I had a season in my life where I spent a lot of time traveling and teaching church leaders around the world how to run the Alpha course in their local communities. And in particular, I spent quite a bit of time in Australia and in various parts of America. And I soon came to see, as I stood at the front talking to people, that it was very, very, very easy to discern that these church leaders, to a person, had made a big discovery. And the discovery was that the task Jesus has given us is huge. It's absolutely huge. And that if you rely on your own strength, you will discover it's not enough. Your compassion will run dry. You won't be able to comfort the sick. There are too many of them, it's too demanding. You won't be able to heal the sick because you haven't got the power or the strength. You won't be able to bring words of hope or words of knowledge unless you ask the Holy Spirit's help. And when you read in Scripture and when you teach it properly that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power, why on earth wouldn't you want to ask God for that? And then I discovered, you know, some 15 years later, now that we left the debating chamber, we're actually on the streets trying to minister to people, that all that pride and all that academic division was totally irrelevant. It was like you'd give an invitation for people to come forward to ask for God's blessing of his Holy Spirit, and they couldn't come fast enough because we just knew that our own strength was not enough. Why wouldn't you want to receive power? Power to serve. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his middle streams of living water will flow. And I promise you, as your church leader, I will not bully you. I will never coerce you. I won't shout at you. I won't push you. I won't cajole you. I won't make you feel second class if you don't speak in tongues, etc. But I will exhort you, and I will encourage you, and I will teach you, and I will bear witness to you openly and urge you that you should eagerly desire spiritual gifts because it's scriptural and we need God's help. We need to be his empowered people. And before I leave this topic, there are just other reasons to motivate us to ask for the Holy Spirit, apart from being empowered. Holiness comes with the Holy Spirit. 
God calls us to be holy, but we can't do it in our own strength. No way. And if you turn to passages that you know well, like Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, and you read that list to yourself, say every day for a month, and you say, Lord, I really need your help that I might be full of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, etc. Or if you read 1 Corinthians 13, the description of what love is like, and say, Lord, I really need you to ingrain this in my life. The Holy Spirit will help. And actually, it's very important to hold these two points together, that the gifts of the Spirit, the power gifts, and the character of the Spirit need to be bonded together, don't they? But there's a problem, there's a challenge. And the challenge is this, that the gifts come just like that. You just pray, Lord, I'd like the gift of tongues, and doink, you receive, just like that. It's no proof of your maturity whatsoever. It's just a gift given. But the fruit of the Spirit is ingrained, grafted, takes time to grow. It's a lifetime's achievement. And we need both. And then there's another reason why I I know that we should be going into this territory as part of our five values. It's the joy of it. It's the fun of it. It's just such fun when the Holy Spirit blesses people. And when joy comes into the Lord's house. On the few times where I've experienced what you might call, if not revival, something quite like it, where the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon a congregation over a season, all sorts of miracles happened. The biggest one, you will understand, was people arrived on time to church. That's absolutely extraordinary. People arrived early. (laughs) They were so eager to get into God's house. They were seriously, seriously wanted to get there early. And then there was a second thing I noticed. We were all slightly afraid. We we were just slightly on edge. It was a bit like as if you had a tame tiger in the hall and you patted it on the head every day on the way out. But one day it growled at you. You can't help and it's a bit like, you know, we know we come into God's house and God's all-powerful and everything else. But once he, he roars, you, you, no one worshipped with their hands in their pockets. No one. We were all just slightly on edge for what God might do. Other things that happened. Giving went up exponentially. Couldn't stop people giving. You just couldn't stop them being generous. They wanted to give. Lots of people uh, volunteered for full-time service and are still in the mission field from that time. People queued up to get into the church. The word got around that people came from all over the place uh, because they wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. So I I just commend it because it's fun. It's fun to be there when it happens. So just to earth this, let me ask you, I'm not asking you to say it out aloud, but have you invited the Holy Spirit to renew your walk with God recently? Would you like to? We're going to need to because our strength will never be enough. In fact, none of these areas that I'm talking about 
the word grow, the love show, the worship flow, the spirit glow, none of them will be effective without the help of the Holy Spirit. And thinking back to Canon Coffin, maybe his mistake was a bit like this. A church without the Holy Spirit, I think, if you think back to the days before electric cars, a church without the Holy Spirit is much like a car without petrol. It can be maintained, it can be polished, people can sit in it, they can admire it, it can be preserved, but it's not going anywhere. It's not being used as its designer intended. It lacks power. And if a time came when the majority of cars were without petrol, there could come a time when to put petrol in the tank might be considered dangerous. The petrol could catch fire. The car could move and crash. But the answer to these things isn't to destroy all the petrol stocks, because that would make the cars useless. Now, there's one big problem with this illustration, seems to me, and it's my illustration, so I can criticize it. It, it wouldn't really matter if all cars were grounded, because we'd find another way of getting around. But it really matters if God's family, God's church is grounded, because God has no other way of getting around. We're his ambassadors. We're his agents. We're his witnesses. And there is no second way. <laughs> so, so we have to be obedient about this. Okay, the last, the last value, the fifth one. And it's the very last verse of the passage, verse 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And the snappy heading, which rhymes with all the others, let the world know. And there's something of a paradox here. You might have thought, I might have thought if I didn't know better, two things that would be wrong. I might have thought that this fifth thing, let the world know, would happen automatically if the other four things were in place. I might have thought that if a word was being preached, if a love was being shown, if a worship was really filling God's house, if the Holy Spirit was really rampant, then surely the Lord would add daily those who are being saved. And the answer is no, because we have to agree with the Lord. We have to make it possible for new people to come and join us. And you might have thought, and you'd be wrong, that surely we would want the whole world to know, and so we would make it possible. But sometimes really great churches are not seeing people saved and joining their number, not because the theology is wrong, but because it's so hard to join that group. And friends, I, I, I'm going to tell it to you straight as it really is. It is very hard to be a growing church. It is much more uncomfortable than being a church which is static. Life becomes unpredictable. Change comes into your family. And we all dislike change. 
We all want growth, but we none of us want change. Let me ask you a very simple question. We might even try a show of hands on this. How many of us sit in the same seat every day for breakfast? When you have breakfast and you go into your kitchen and wherever you have it, do you always have it in the same seat? Okay, I'm the only one. <laughs> I usually use that as an illustration for most of us have quite change resistant. But you can think of other examples. And I'm just pointing this out because when new people start coming in, our lives are going to change. Because it's up to God who he saves. And this is the point. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. That, that's the point. This is like I began this whole series. This is a salvation issue. We're talking about heavy stakes here. We're not a club trying to increase our membership. We're talking about people being saved from an eternity without God. And that's why, it seems to me, we have to be obedient in making space for people who don't yet belong to this community because salvation is at stake. And it's worth me being a bit uncomfortable. It's worth me being a bit tested to if it makes someone else's journey into the kingdom more likely to happen. And as I say, I can't predict to you, and you can't predict to me, who it is God will save. I'm told, reliably told, that for years, my sister-in-law prayed for me before I was converted. And this is what she prayed. She would pray for you know, everything else going on in the world and her whole family and all her friends and goodness knows what. And the last line of her prayers was, and Lord, when it comes to Rupert, I just don't know what to say. <laughs> and uh, we just don't know who the God, God will call. But we do know this. You know this, because in virtually every evening that I've had out there, Liz and I enjoying meeting members of St. Michael's, nearly everyone said the reason they joined this church was because of the love they felt when they came in the doors. We've got love to share. We've got love to share. And we have to share it. However much it costs me, we've got to share it. So I, I am going to throw a few questions at us just to consider how easy are we making it for new people to come into St. Michael's? How much are we signaling in all sorts of ways, you're most welcome here. We're so glad you're with us. I mean, we don't have any welcome cards out on seats or anything like that at the moment. It's not immediately obvious to me how they find their way into a fellowship group or a house group. And if you got a phone call from one of the leaders saying, could you take three new people in your house group, would you say, we'll make the effort, we'll make the room, we'll multiply our group if it's necessary because we have to make room for new people? Or would you say, we're full? And the truth is we've all traveled that journey because there's a kind of push-me-pull-you dynamic. All of us know this. That, you know, one of the strange things in small groups is you love one another and you love the fact that you're known and you know everyone. And, and it, why disrupt it? Why rock the boat? Well, I'm telling you why we have to rock the boat. 
We've got to get that river of life flowing again. We've got to make room. Right now in London, and not just London, people are getting more obviously lonely by the day. Just, we didn't, we didn't plan it to happen, but COVID is bringing this to light, is it not? People are just so cut off. And we've got the love of God to share. And so we want to align with this early church that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I want you to challenge me on each of these five things, just like I'm challenging you. As I said last week, we're in this game together. It's not a game, but we're in this together. I'm not here bullying you, telling you what to do better. We're team St. Michael's, as far as I understand it. And we're putting our shoulder and strength of the wheel together. And it's, it's my dream that we will see in this church more and more people, people who don't even belong yet, owning the territory. Coming in with confidence and sitting in our seat. Coming in and saying, I'd like to help you with the sound system. I'd like to be part of a worship group. I'd like to be part of a hang group. Well, we, we say, yeah, this is God's family. Of course, come and join us. Do you know we've got five goals in this church? Let me sit you down and explain them. Do you see where we're going? This is the commission God's giving us. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm telling you, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's not going to lose the plot any day soon. I will build my church, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to pray for us. And then... Um, Dan is going to lead us, I hope. <laughs> Are you Dan? Yes. And we're going to repeat what we did on Sunday, and um, we're going to have a scratch worship group. You know, it's so frustrating if you're behind a mask and you're longing. We're going to be singing Amazing Grace. And um, behind me is lots of space. So when I finish praying, if you want to be part of our singing group tonight, <clears throat> you can be. The only way you're allowed to sing without a mask is to come up behind me and space out and, and to sing, because you will then be the worship group. Amazing grace. Doesn't that sound fun? Great. Let me pray for us. Lord God, your plan for us as your church, your family, is a good plan. It's the best plan. And we thank you that you've aligned us to your purposes. Thank you that to join your ambassadors, and to accept your commission, to be part of your family, is to say, yes, Lord. And we would long to see all these aspects increasingly come to pass at St. Michael's. We long to be changed by your word, to see your word take hold in our hearts. We long that your love would overflow, that our worship would be authentic, that the Holy Spirit would do whatever he wants to do and that you'd be so pleased to add to our number daily those who are being saved. So, Lord, see our hearts, see that we surrender to you afresh. We're just glad that this is your church, not ours. It's up to you. And we're your children. In Jesus' name, amen.